Thanks, bro. How y'all doing? Good? Rankham Tech. Come on. All right, y'all. I currently uh, live in Austin, Texas. I know. Um, and so I will be wearing red and black at the UT versus uh, Texas Tech game. Uh, so I will be there. I'm going to be repping. I don't know how the outcome is going to be, but it's okay. Uh, I have confidence in Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I don't need to worry about what Texas Tech is doing. Um, and so, look, yeah, like Cody said, um, I was a college pastor here when some of you guys were in junior high. Um, so you have no idea who I am, but it brings me so much joy to just come to this room and hearing so many students still worshiping Jesus. Y'all, the the footprint that Redeemer and this college ministry has on the world, not just Lubbock, not just the nation, but on the world is crazy. And so y'all are a part of something that God has been doing, that God has birthed for a really long time. And Again, it just gives me so much joy to be here with y'all. God used Redeemer to change my life, and I know that he's going to do that with you. Um, So I was a student here. Uh, Then I led all guys group. Any all guys group leaders in here? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, Loved that time. Then I was an intern. Then I was a resident for a little bit. Um, Then my college pastor transitioned to a different church. And then I stepped into the role, uh, not knowing anything or how to do my job at all. And um, but yeah, it just fills my heart up to be here tonight. Um, And so, couple shout outs. Shout out to Brandon for being an incredible college pastor. Uh, Yeah, y'all give it up for Brandon. Um, y'all, that, that man is a godsend. He's been an elder at this church for a while now, and just seeing him lead uh, this ministry and lead inside this church, especially through some crazy hard seasons that none of y'all know anything about, um, man, God has used Brandon. And then also Cody and Emily, give it up for them too. Um, yeah, Cody and Emily are amazing. Um, I've known Cody since Cody was in college. Um, and y'all, God has used them in tremendous ways. I know he's using them now. And then one more shout out, Amber. Amber, I met Amber in the back. Shout out to Amber. She was like, if you give me a shout out on stage, just go ahead and do it. And I was like, girl, I got you. So Amber, I see you. Um, and last but not least, my wife is here. Yeah, last time I was here, I had no wife. I got a wife now. It's great. Um, Hannah, me and Hannah have been married for almost two years, coming up on two years and uh, on New Year's Eve. Anyways, that's enough about me. Yeah, aw, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Praise God, she puts up with me. Um, okay, so, uh, so enough about me. We're gonna hop into this text and we're finishing up the series that you guys have been going through for a little bit now. Uh, we're gonna be in the book of 1 John and we're gonna be in chapter five. And to be honest, um, it's quite a bit of stuff in this chapter. Uh, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a doozy. I wrote that down here and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to say that out loud, but I just did. Um, and so there's a lot that John packed into this last section. Uh, so here's a breakdown now. This final chapter is like a twofold summary of the entire book. So if you read this chap- chapter and you memorize this chapter, you kind of have memorized the main points of the entire book of First John. So the first half in verses one through 12 John restates the theme that we know that we are God's children if we believe in Jesus Christ and if we love and obey God. That's the first 12 verses. And then the second half, verses 13 through 21, graphs the major theme of how we can confidently know that we are genuine believers. And so we won't be able to hit on everything uh, because we'd be here all night. I would love to do that with you guys, but uh, I got to be on the road at 6 a.m., And so we're just going to start off exploring some of these big themes, okay? 
So 1 John, we're going to start at uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. 1 John 5, starting at chapter, verse 1, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Sorry about that. Okay. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So what John is saying right here is that your belief in Jesus Christ, you singing these words and meeting it when we're worshiping, you raising your hands, you praying to God, that is all a miracle that God started in you. It is a miracle that you would have genuine faith. It cannot happen apart from what God started in your own heart. Now, I remember being in West Texas. I was in West Texas for a long time, graduated from the Texas Tech University at Lubbock. Hello. Um, And look, I know that Lubbock is kind of a Christian bubble in a sense. Like I've lived in Austin for a bit. They say, yeah, Austin is weird. Keep Austin weird. Y'all, it's wild out there. It is super weird out there. And I, uh, just walking around Lubbock, I mean, literally, you can't go into a McDonald's without it playing worship music here. And so when we think about, like, Christianity, we see it saturated in cultures and families and whatnot. Uh, But I don't want us to be confused because true belief doesn't get merely passed down to you from your family or from your culture. It's not something that you inherit. It has to be birthed by God in your heart, and that leads to confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. But cultural Christianity can sometimes make it difficult to know whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus. And that's what John wants to help us know. He wants to help us know how we know we are of Christ. And in verse two, he says that if we know we are a child of God, that we know we are a child of God when we love God and when we obey his commandments. We know that we are a child of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So part of your growth in Christ is believing and experiencing that his commandments are not burdensome. Part of your growth in Christ you're maturing in Christ is realizing that, oh, this is not a checklist that God is giving me to weigh me down and keep me from experiencing a good life. It is for my good. It is not burdensome. And so my question for you is, do you feel like God's commandments are burdensome? I mean, there's certainly times when I do. Uh, see, I was led to Christ by an older college student at foundation camp. Foundation's still around, Right? Shout out to Foundation. I was an 18-year-old kid who did not believe in Jesus, walked out there following Jesus, being involved in the local church, love that ministry. Um, so I was led to Christ by an older college student at Foundation. And at first, I remember my first year, freshman year, may, maybe you guys can relate. I was genuinely abiding in Jesus. I was having 
so much joy. I loved reading the Bible. It was like nothing I ever read before. And his commandments weren't burdensome. Like I was running headfirst into serving, giving. I was so broke as a freshman, y'all, like broke, broke. And I was like, I got a tithe 10%. And like, I was going after it. But it felt like over time, things started to feel like a checklist for me. How many of you guys have been there before? There was genuinely a time where you just ran after Jesus Christ. Like no if and buts about it. I'm just gonna follow him with everything I have. But then all of a sudden you feel burdened down by God's commandments. I started out as if I was saved by grace, by God, what God had birthed in me. And eventually I evolved into being saved by works, but that's not right. His commandments became burdensome to me. And maybe that's how some of you are feeling here tonight. But here's the thing. When that happens, it's not the commandments that are burdensome. It's not God placing a burden on you. It's actually you. It's actually me. Like, I I remember twisting the purpose of those commandments. I thought that God's commandments were to make me a good person so that I could climb up this ladder to see Jesus and make it to heaven. But no, that's not what the gospel is, right? The gospel is you dead on the ground. You're on a stretcher and Jesus has to come down from the right hand of the throne of God and pick you up and bring you up there, right? That is the gospel, that you cannot save yourself, but Jesus has to enter so I twisted the purpose for the commandments and maybe you're doing that as well. Another way commandments can seem burdensome is them not feeling like, honestly, like they're not fun. Like they're not productive with the things you have to do on your agenda. You hear things in the Bible like, don't neglect meeting together. But then you're like, but there's a party. There's something more fun. There's something that I feel like is gonna give me life. I, I don't need to go to things like GC this week. Oh, it's okay. I have many other, 52 other Sundays I can go to. I, don't, I can skip this one. Those things begin to feel burdensome because you have other alternatives. Or you see things like in Psalm 1 where God says, be like a tree planted in streams of water. That's how we are supposed to be planted in the word. But then we give the excuses of, I have so much to do. I mean, why would I read my Bible when I have this entire textbook that I have to read, right? I have school, I have homework, I have all these different things. I don't have time for that. It's a burden. Or you see things like be generous in the Bible, be generous. Then you're like, I don't have money. I'm super broke. I work all these jobs. Feels like I have nothing in the pocket. Meanwhile, you go ahead and spend all your money at J&B. It was the same thing then. Nothing is new under the sun, Right? I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a whole different uh, monomyth right now. Is monomyth coffee? Wait, what? Summer moon. Summer moon. That's an awesome place. Come on. Uh, anyways, same thing. Same coffee, same places, same excuses, right? Um, but the commandments of God are not to be burdensome. They're for you to flourish. They're for your protection. They're for your perseverance in your faith. That's why when you slowly see people fall away from the faith, people who are in seats like this with you. It starts little by little by little. I'll neglect being in God's word. I'll neglect being with people. I'll neglect cultivating a a generous heart for others and for the least vulnerable. And then all of a sudden, you see those people no longer walking with God. The commandments of God are for your flourishing. They're for your 
good. Like, here's a new way you can think about the commandments. They take the true burdens off of you because that's what Jesus has come to do, right? We can lay all of our burdens at the feet of Jesus and his salvation frees us up to live as God originally designed us to live, the good life. And so you and I were created for flourishing, but we live in a world that teaches us the opposite. Our world actually disciples us the opposite way to believe that the world can provide everything you need to flourish as a human being. But the world did not make you, the world does not know you, and the world does not love you. Actually, Satan, the ruler of this world, his intentions in John 10 is to steal, kill, and destroy you. That's what he wants. So if you hear anything from the outside, outside of God's word, outside of Jesus that's saying, you can find life here, it's all a trick. The world just wants to chew you up and spit you out. Wants to destroy your life, but God wants you to live and live abundantly. That's what he says right here in his word. He's come to redeem us to live the way we're meant to live in this world. That's why I love the song Firm Foundation so much. It's totally Holy Spirit that like weave that together with like the text I was praying about even bringing into uh, this teaching. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 Jesus finishes out the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying all of these commandments for uh, the new kingdom of God that he's forming. And at the end, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Amen. That's what life is like, obeying God's commandments, being in Jesus Christ. And then verse 26 shows the other path. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus is showing you right here how to build your house on the rock. He's giving you his commandments so that you can have that firm foundation in him. So when your trials inevitably come, you'll be okay because you're protected by him. And as a Christian, you have a little bit of dog in your DNA, right? Like that's what the Holy Spirit gives us. Like there's this sort of confidence that we know no matter what happens in the world, No matter what happens out there, no matter what wind or waves beat on the house, that you're going to be okay. That's what it should be like living as a Christian because you're born of God. You have overcome the world. That's what John says here. You, you may have had a terrible week at school. And I know in a remnant size, somebody probably just got out of a breakup, right? I've been there many times in college. And some of you guys are having one of the worst weeks of your life. I'm sure of it. But Jesus says, through John, one of his best friends, that if you're in Christ, you have overcome the world. That's the type of power and confidence that you have. And that's so beautiful. 
See, the gift of faith that God has sprouted in your heart, despite the world and Satan try to snuff it out, the gift of faith that leads to the defeat of death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and begins our eternal life reigning with him, that's how we overcome, through faith, through this gift of faith that God has given to us. And this is how we know we have overcome. You and I know the end. Think about that. You and I know the end. Revelation 7, 9. It's this beautiful picture of every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping Jesus, singing holy, holy, holy. Like, we know the end, and we know that Jesus has brought us to the end. He's brought us into eternity. We have a picture of it in the Bible written by John. We know the end. The end is that we win. The end is that we are conquerors in Jesus Christ because Jesus wins, amen? That is the beautiful thing about what we see in the Bible. Y'all, we know the end. If you're struggling right now, remember, you know the end, that today is not gonna be forever. Your forever is worshiping Jesus with every tear wiped. No more illnesses, no more pain, no more anxiety. Y'all, my, my story is one filled with chronic anxiety and depression. Um, I was actually diagnosed with anxiety before leaving here and moving to Austin. And something that my mom kind of figured that I had from when I was super young. Um, and knowing the end, knowing that Jesus wins, he not only rose from the grave, but he's coming back to make everything new. It changed everything for me. Because think of it this way. Anxiety is thinking of a future or a future moment where I won't be cared for. Future moment where I won't be valued. A future moment where I won't be seen. A future moment where I won't be loved. But because I'm a conqueror through Jesus Christ, I know the end. I know the end that I am loved that I am protected, that I am cared for, that I am valued by God because he has me with him in his family, worshiping Jesus forever and ever and ever. I know the end and that can help me wake up in the morning when the mornings are really tough. And I hope that does the same thing for you. You can have this type of gospel confidence that comes from the love of God, that he saw you from far off while you were still sinners and send his one and only son to die for you. That's the type of confidence that we have. And while we may take some losses on this side of heaven, they're never gonna go into eternity. It's only going to be us in fellowship, relationship with each other and Jesus forever and ever and ever. Verse five says, who is it that overcomes the world except for the one that believes that Jesus is the son of God? And that's us. Like That's you. You believe that Jesus has overcome the world and you get to join into that reign. Let's continue in verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, there's a lot there that's super confusing. So that's why we're going to break it down together. So the word testimony occurs eight times. You could even go in and even underline every time it says testimony throughout this entire part of the passage. It occurs eight times within verses 6 through 12. And when John is talking about this testimony, he's speaking of the truth of the gospel being testified in two specific ways. The first is by historical fact. Like that, when John was writing this, John lived with Jesus. He lived three, life, three years with him during his life. And then he saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus rise. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the historical fact is when he says by water and by blood. And that's referring to Jesus' baptism. The baptism that, yes, if you've been baptized as a believer in here, you join in a tradition that Jesus did. There's not many things you can do that Jesus has done. Like, not a lot at all. But by joining him in that commandment of being baptized after being saved, you are walking in that. So we see that Jesus was actually baptized by John the Baptist. That's written down in the Gospels. And that's a historical fact that Jesus lived. But then also by the blood. The blood was the end of Jesus' public ministry. So as the water, the baptism was the start of Jesus' public ministry, the blood is kind of signifying the end of Jesus' ministry. We saw these three years of Jesus doing his ministry on earth and on a cross where he died for our sins is where his blood was poured out. So that's what John is referring to here. And these historical facts are here to tell you that Jesus ain't like Santa Claus. He's not like the tooth fairy. He's not some type of person that you only call on to just give you good luck. It's not somebody that you pray to to win your football games. Jesus is real. He's a human. He lived, he died, and he rose. He's a real historical figure who lived and died, and there's a testimony that has been passed down from generation to generation that started with John and the apostles that we can believe in and be confident in. And if you don't want to just believe the Bible, you can also hear it from people who are way smarter than me, who have way more degrees than me. Uh, Lee Strobel. Uh, how many of you guys have heard of that guy? Lee Strobel. Yeah, some of you guys have. Come on. Uh, he was an atheist with a law degree. And he began investigating uh, the biblical claims about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection after his wife's conversion. So his wife gets saved, and he's like, what? Like, this is so fake. And as a lawyer, he got all these degrees. He's researched a lot of things. And so he's going in to try to investigate if Jesus actually lived. Prompted by the results of his investigation, he became a Christian at 29 years old. After looking into the historical facts, he became a Christian. 
He wrote a short book called The Case for Christ that I'd recommend. It's really short. It's really great if you want kind of an introduction to apologetics or maybe you're even struggling with those historical facts about Jesus. But he gives a few reasons from his research why Jesus existed and died. And I'm not going to get into the subpoints of all of them, but he says this. He says, sources outside of the Bible confirm that Jesus was at least executed. So Jesus was a real person who lived and walked on the earth. And then two, he says that there are eyewitness accounts. There are people who are like, I saw that man and he was dead, like dead, dead. He was not coming out of that tomb. And so they knew a man named Jesus and that uh, they killed him as the king of the Jews. Within three, the news spread quickly about his resurrection. For the word Gospel was used as a proclamation uh, chant for people to say that we won the war, that good news has come, we won the war. And even news back then, when any war happened, spread super slow. But in Lee Strobel's book, he talks about how the news spreading quickly shows that this was an actual real thing that happened, that Jesus rose from the grave and from what Mary and Martha talked to all of these many people about spread from place to place, and the testimony of God grew greater and greater and greater. And historical facts are incredible, and they are here. They are around. You can do the research yourself. You can read from people who have done those things, but they aren't enough to save you. They aren't enough to save you. And that's why John says, there's the water and the blood. It's the first testimony, but then there's also the spirit. There's also the spirit. Without this second testimony through the spirit, through God himself, through special or specific revelation, one cannot be saved. Um, and special, specific revelation, is, it's a theological term, but here's basically what it says. Revelation is in two ways, a general revelation and a specific revelation. General is that the Bible says that we can know that we have a creator by looking around the fact that the earth tilts on an axis and it doesn't go so far as to freeze us or go too far away um, to burn us, right? Like there are historical facts, real things that we can see about the earth that we can claim that, man, God is real. We have a creator. We have something. But then there's specific revelation where God reveals to our hearts that he is Lord. And that's what he did with Lee Strobel. He set up the historical facts so that he could learn that, oh, Jesus is a real person, but that did not change his heart. It was only through the Holy Spirit, what God birthed in him. And that's how God saves. And these two testimonies bring us by faith into eternal life. And God gives us in his son that eternal life. Verse 12 says, whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so here's the thing. Satan wants you to believe that you have lost. Satan wants you to not believe in the fact that Jesus has come. He wants you to believe that you are not a part of what he's doing. So he creates confusion about things like your salvation. That's what he does. He wants true believers to actually doubt their salvation. 
And this leads to this crescendo for why John is writing all of this. This one verse, verse 13, this one verse is basically his thesis for his entire book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you're sure that you have eternal life. So John's gospel, when you read that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read that letter, that gospel account, you'll see that his purpose was evangelistic. He says in John 20, 31, that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, but this one is for believers like you and I to know that we have assurance of salvation. And I'm sure that there are some of you in here tonight who are wondering if you have eternal life. And that's a perfect reason for why you have leaders all around us, staff members all around us, people like me all around you, who can help you and counsel you through that. So I encourage you even after our time of worship or during our time of worship, right after this, to go talk to somebody if you have any questions about this. But Y'all, John wants us to know that we have eternal life. Because I've been there. Lack of assurance of salvation can actually rob you of your joy. It can rob you of beautiful things that God is doing through you and in your faith. So another repetition thing that you can point out in this passage is if you go throughout the first uh, John 5 chapter, you'll see that the word know K-N-O-W occurs seven times within those verses. And then when John says, I want you to know that you have assurance of salvation, that's what he's getting at every time he says the word no. These are things you can be sure of, that you can bank it on. So having assurance of salvation is crucial to your spiritual health and growth. It's possible for a person in here to be saved and not have that assurance of salvation. And feel like, man, some days I'm a lot better than other days. So am I really a Christian? Now, does this mean that your faith has to be perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And here's why. It's because you are not the object of your faith. You are not the object of your faith. Jesus is. And we can praise him and we can worship him and we can sing loud because of that, Jesus is the object of your faith. You're the sinking sand. So when you put your hope, your trust in yourself or in your good works or how good you are at doing all the things that God commands us, you're eventually gonna sink because you're not that firm foundation. You are not Jesus. You're not your savior. But Jesus is stable. His foundation is firm. He is steadfast. And that's why you can be confident in your faith because Jesus lives and Jesus was perfect. He lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death we should have died. And he rose from the grave defeating Satan, sin, and death. And we can put our hope in Jesus and that's why we are so sure in our salvation. We're sure in our salvation because we believe that Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And so this is what gospel confidence produces in verse 14. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, this entire section is going to be talking about prayer. Um, And I don't have time to speak long on a section related to prayer, but I want to give you a summary based on what the rest of the chapter in this book is saying in context. The confidence in eternal life, the confidence that you have in Jesus should translate into a daily confidence through your prayer life. When I first started praying, before I was a Christian, I would just do it because people told me to do it. And it felt like I was praying to the wall. I'm just throwing up these empty phrases, hoping that somebody out there who was God hurt them. But this is the type of confidence you can have as a child of God now, that when you pray, God hears you. That you are praying to a living God who's already sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live, die, and rise for you. And the book of Romans says, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for every single one of us, he will confidently give us all things. What does that mean? It means that if Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and rose, then that means that everything else for God is a piece of cake. The biggest miracle ever is that you and I can have hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh that we can actually be adopted back into God's family and God looks at us justified just as if we were Jesus, his son. That is the biggest miracle. So everything else is a piece of cake for for God. And so that is what this passage is telling us. We can put our hope and confidence in Jesus Christ and that should translate into how we pray. A lack of a prayer life is usually rooted in pride. It's rooted in pride because there is some belief that you can handle everything on your own so you don't have to ask God the Father who created you, created all things to help you out. But you shedding that in humility through the Holy Spirit, you can pray to your Father who loves to hear from you, who absolutely loves to hear from you. And then you'll see right here in verse 16 that your confidence shouldn't only increase your prayers for yourself, but also should increase your prayers for everybody else. Knowing that God has saved you and he's the source of your hope and confidence, you have a confidence that his love can save literally anybody. Because your heart was once a heart of stone. You were once an enemy of God, but you're now his child. Verse 16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's a lot going on here. Like I said, we don't have all night to break this down. You can ask Cody. He has a great new uh, master's degree, uh, and he would love to tell you more about this passage. But I want you to focus on that verse 18 leading into 19. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Talk about confidence right there, right? Like 
Satan can't touch you. He can't touch you because you are protected by God. That should give you a boost of confidence. And then verse 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this is what I was touching on a little bit earlier. We see that John Stott says this about this verse uh, through a commentary on 1 John. He says that John, the author, wastes no words and blurs no issue. The uncompromising alternative is stated badly. Everyone belongs to either us or the world. Everyone is therefore either of God or under the control of the evil one. There's no third category. Nowadays, when the line of demarcation between the church and the world is confused, it is important to learn again that all but those who have had a heavenly birth are under the authority and rule of the powers of this dark world in Ephesians 6.12. And of their chief, the God and prince of this world, Satan. We need to remember, however, that although the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it is for the sins of the whole world, the only other occurrence of the expression in the letter, that Jesus Christ is the propitiation, that he pays the penalty for our sins. That Jesus Christ has lived, died, and paid for us to be a part of God's family. So you and I can have confidence that our prayers are heard and that they will be received. And that God loves hearing from his kids. Verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen. And after this entire book, John ends with one sentence like kind of a mic drop. And in all honesty, I studied this for a long time. It really comes out of nowhere. Or it sounds like it. He says this, like a loving father to his little kids, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then that's the end of the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This letter ends somewhat abruptly But after spending a long time praying and trying to seek what God meant by this, I think I have a little bit of insight on why it's there. Remember that most New Testament letters contain these final words of warning in their closing lines. And John kind of has more Twitter fingers than everybody else, right? Or X fingers. I don't know, man. I'm I'm getting old now. And he's just going to drop this bomb. He's going to leave you with it before he sends his other two letters. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols means keeping yourselves from trusting, keeping yourselves from obeying, revering, following that is, in effect, worshiping anyone or anything other than God himself. The sure, the true, the firm foundation that he is because everything else, just like you, are created in like sinking sand. It really brings together everything that he's been talking about. God is the true God, capital G. Everything else is lowercase and will fail you. 
Everything else will use you. God will love you and use you for his glory and his good. Everything else will destroy you, but God will lift you up. He'll give you a flourishing life when you obey his commandments. We know Jesus. We've been bought into God's family. We believe the testimony. Heck, we are the testimony, right? Every single one of you in here can talk to me. If you believe in Jesus, you can tell me your story and it's death to life every single time. It's a miracle every single time. You are the testimony. We are the testimony and we have received true love. So why the heck would we go to these counterfeits, these idols that don't love us, that did not create us, that will not give us that gospel confidence that we need to live a flourishing life? Why would we exchange the truth we know about God for a lie from Satan? Paul in Romans 6 says this. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed of? For those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So your confidence and fellowship with Jesus turns us from all earthly idols. And that's the call of repentance I want to give you today. That there are probably things especially in a room of this size. There are probably some of you in here who still have things on the seat of your heart that are above God. And God wants to protect you and love you in a type of way to remove those things from you. And maybe you've never asked for prayer for more boldness and strength to do that and submit that to God, but I wanna ask you to do it tonight. God has a life for you that is flourishing. That is a life full of joy And yes, there's some losses that you will still take on this side of heaven, but you have eternity worshiping him. He wants you to submit your life, every single thing in it, 100% of it to him. So you can join in where we're going to be talking the entire month of November about, right? Every nation, tongue, tribe will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we're going to be worshiping him forever and ever and ever. He wants you a part of that too. It's not just for those people. It's also for you. The gospel came to you as well. And so I want to challenge you with that. Because when we're confident in Jesus, it changes everything about how we deal with mental health, anxiety, depression. changes everything about how we look at illnesses, how we look at hardships, these momentary afflictions. It changes everything about how we take on pain. Because Paul also says that our sufferings produces hope. And our hope will lead to a gospel confidence, a hope that we believe in something unshakable. And Jesus was the most confident person who ever lived. It's not because he was cocky. It's not because he had pride. But because he was confident in the work of his father. He's fully confident to the point, even when he was Sweating blood in the garden, praying to his father, knowing that he was going to meet his end soon. He was confident enough to still go in faith and confidence to his father 
and pray to him and go and be obedient, knowing that he would rise from the grave, knowing that he would defeat Satan's sin and death and ascend to heaven after his resurrection and send his Holy Spirit to you guys, that you would join in this confidence, that you would join in to this type of life that God is calling you to. Even knowing he had death on the way, he was confident in his resurrection. And so if you need help believing that, if you need help believing that that gospel is for you, that God is better than whatever idols you're holding on to, or even if you need some help walking through that assurance of salvation, I just want to say me and a bunch of other staff people are going to be in the back. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you and sit with you and help you work that out. But we're just going to tell you from stage, like what God is already telling you, that he loves you. And he's shown that through the testimony of sending his son to live, die, and rise for you to make you a part of this family. And now we just want to call you to receive that. So let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that there's no one far away no one's so far from you that you can't reach. That there's nothing in our hearts and our lives that you aren't willing to redeem. Father, as we worship tonight, God, I pray that it would not just be looking at words and singing them off of a screen. God, I pray that we would sing loudly and boldly with confidence because you have defeated the grave, you've defeated sin, you've defeated Satan. And because of that, we know that we are your children. We know that this is not the end for us. No matter how bad things get here, we have eternity of all of your love, of all of that confidence, of all of that protection. And God, you don't want us to just experience all of that in heaven. You want us to experience some of that now. So I pray that those of us in this room who needs who would ask for prayer would actually repent and set down our idols. And God, would you leave every single soul, lead all of us out of here, boasting in your greatness? Would you make us so high off of the confidence that you've given us? The fact that whoever your kids will not be touched. Thank you for that promise. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.